Haggai chapter 1. And this, this uh, a prophecy of Haggai, or it's a couple prophecies, it's a reminder to a discouraged people that God still reigns, that the Lord of hosts is still in, on his throne and leading all things. And uh, the name that Haggai uses for God, he calls God the Lord of hosts, which is a name that reminds us that God is an overwhelming majority. So Haggai chapter 1, page 937. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Let's bow together and ask God to work in our hearts and to stir up our spirits as we meditate on his word. Lord, we thank you for your powerful, life-changing word. And Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit sent out into all the world to reveal Jesus Christ and to point hearts towards your great redemption revealed in these last days. 
and the open way that has been made for everyone of every nation to come to God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Be with your people now, we pray in his name. Amen. So do you hear the discouragement of the people? You know, they're, they're saying the time hasn't come to build the house. They've, they've been experiencing for 50 years being the objects of God's wrath, no longer being the people of his name. They've been sent out into exile, and the beautiful temple, which was the place where God's presence dwelt among his people, was reduced to rubble. The valuable articles, the silver and gold in the temple had been carted off to Babylon and the people were made slaves and servants and they still are to the day of this writing, the second year of King Darius. Darius is not a king of Israel. Darius is not a king of Judah. Darius is the king of Medo-Persia. And he is the king of a vast empire which stretches even to the land of Judah. The people live in a ruins on the top of a hill that once a long time ago was a great city. Some of the old people still remember what it looked like. And the people are discouraged. Sixteen years ago, they were excited. Sixteen years ago, they had moved down from Babylon back to Jerusalem, a large number of them, because the new emperor of the new empire, King Cyrus, had a policy of rebuilding temples and repatriating, re, uh, sending people back to their native lands. And uh, he did this also for the Jews and sent them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So they came down and they came excited to build. They had laid the first stones of the foundation. This same Zerubbabel, this same Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. They were the ones who had begun 16 years before to build the house of the Lord, to rebuild it on its ruins. And they had gone with uh, royal authority. They had gone with the vessels that, were, that had been taken. They were bringing them back with lots of offerings, and they were excited about the work. But the officials in the area opposed the work. Some of the officials in the province. And finally, they sent, uh, they sent letters. You know, there was a new king. Cyrus had died. A new guy was in power. And they managed to get a letter from the king to stop all work on the temple, to bring it to a grinding halt. And so... Uh, very little had been done because of all the opposition and all the frustration and all the slander and all the bribery and everything. Very little had been done, but now for 10 years, nothing has been done. And the weeds are growing up. All there is is a little bit of a foundation, and there's nothing happening at the temple of the Lord, the beautiful place where God would dwell among his people and uh, where people would, would have a place to point to, to seek the Lord. It was a ruins. To the world, they looked like nobodies living in a no-man's land. The exile continues, and they're discouraged. 
The time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. The time has not yet come to rebuild. What else can you conclude? They have the letter from the king. They're only servants, and they've been stopped. So it seems as if God's purposes have failed, and God's people are fools. But they're just waiting, waiting for God to do something. And you know, the danger of waiting for God to do something is that it becomes a habit. And that seems to be what happened with these people. Their discouragement had become a habit. And so the message here is for the people to realize that God still reigns, that, uh, that God governs the world, that God governs the nations, that God governs everywhere, and that God is governing his people even at that time. And that God is the central reality of the universe, that they need to look to God rather than just looking to the king off there in the citadel of Susa, far away beyond the Euphrates River. Because God governs everywhere, his people should serve confidently. God is the ruler of all things, and he calls his people to look to him and not to rely on circumstances. So that's Haggai's message. Let's, uh, let's try to understand what he's saying. If you look here in these verses, uh, he talks about how the people are saying the time has not yet come, but God challenges them in verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? And God challenges them to think about how it's been going for them and to realize that they have been suffering frustration in everything that they've tried to do. As they've been waiting for the, for the, house of the, for the time to come for the house of the Lord to be built, uh, they've been delaying and God has allowed them to be frustrated in all of their efforts because uh, his house is still a ruins. And so he says, verse 5 through 7, that they're experiencing these, these covenant curses. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You plant much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages, and then when you put them in the purse, you don't know what happens, but the buying power just seems to disappear. And the money seems to have more uses and more claims on it than there is money to go around. And so uh, the blessings which God had promised to his people are not being fulfilled. Rather, they're starting to get some of the curses. And uh, so the point is that God is still governing his covenant nation. God still is governing the nations. And the covenant nation was under covenant blessings and curses. If you would uh, keep your place there in Haggai, I'd like to ask you to turn back and look at one of these Old Testament passages which describes the blessings and the curses of the covenant. It's back in Leviticus chapter 26. And so here we have in the book of Leviticus all the rules for how God is to be worshipped. And then at the end of the book, 
all the things that will, the blessings that they will receive if they follow all of these rules and if they worship God as they should. And then the list of all the curses that will come upon them if they don't follow. And it was the standard uh, type of material that would be put in an ancient covenant. So Leviticus chapter 26, that's page 124. And just to take a little section out of this, from verse 9 down to verse 17, just to give you a flavor of blessings and curses, some of the same wording is what we have in Haggai. Leviticus 26.9, I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will keep my covenant with you and you will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke, enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases, and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant seed in vain, because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you, so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee, even when no one is pursuing you. And he goes on and he says, if you still don't obey, then I'll do seven times as much. And if you still ignore me, then I'll make it even worse for you. And so these curses are just so terrible. And the people have experienced it. All, And they're in the midst of experiencing God's curses because they had disobeyed everything he had commanded for centuries. And he was patient with them, but they still failed to obey. And so now they're dragging their feet. They're not rebuilding the temple. And they're starting to experience a little taste of what it means to have God turn a deaf ear to their prayers and start to undermine their blessings. God still governs his covenant nation. The relationship with God is still the main thing for his people. It doesn't matter what's been happening in the world. It doesn't matter where the power has moved to. God's people are still called to put him first. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give your government what they deserve. Pay your taxes Give honor to whom honor is due, but render to God what is God's. Honor and serve God because he has the first claim on your life. And so God still governs his covenant nation. God governs the whole world. God governs nations, his covenant nation, and he governs the whole empire. You know, this King Cyrus, who, uh, who gave the decree that Jerusalem, the temple, should be rebuilt. He was called by name, by God, hundreds of years before he was born. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet, uh, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, this is what it says about 
Cyrus. Um, God who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and I and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, to open doors, to let the prisoners go, to level the mountains and the gates of bronze. God is the one who put Cyrus in his, in, in his place of authority. So God is the one who's been ruling the nations. The time has come when God has put Cyrus in power so that these people could come and, and rebuild the temple. But they've experienced a frustration. They've experienced a setback, and they've become discouraged. But they need to remember that God still secretly orders all things everywhere. And this is, this is the, the way that God rules and governs is by what we call providence. He secretly orders all things in a way that we can't trace out, we can't understand how God moves people and makes things happen in the life of Cyrus and, and the people around him and all the little decisions that they made and all the little random things that happen. Somehow, God works things out in some marvelous way, if we could understand it, we would be understanding God, and I suppose we would be God at that point, because only God could understand the infinite being of God. But God guides all things. He governs his covenant nation, he governs the whole empire, and he governs all nations for the purposes of redemption. So, uh, the highest goal of God's secret ordering of all things is to bring all peoples to the light of redemption and grace and salvation. So at the end of the Bible, those last verses in the book of Revelation, we read this. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! Let him who hears say, Come! And whoever is thirsty, let him come! And whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. That last chapter of the book of Revelation pictures a stream of the water of life flowing from the very throne of God, flowing from the the very center of the heavenly new city of Jerusalem, which God himself has rebuilt, the city that has no architect, but whose builder is God. And from the very center where God dwells in her midst flows this stream of the water of life. And all are welcome to come and drink. And this little temple that's a ruins on a hill in Jerusalem is a picture of that eternal reality of God's presence and God's eternal blessing on the people from all nations, every tongue and tribe that he will call together and bless eternally, on whom he will, he will, he will pour out this water of life. So God is governing the nations. God is still ruling. And this temple that they're to rebuild here in Haggai chapter 1 is the very center of God's plans. 
It's the center of the world. You know, at that time, they called the whole province where Judah was and where Jerusalem was and Samaria and Edom and Moab and all those countries that were around Israel. That whole province they called beyond the river, Trans-Euphrates. It's, it's the place, oh, that place over on the other side of the river. Because for them, the center of everything was over in Persia, over in Susa. That's where the center of everything was. That's where the important place was. But from God's perspective, His people and His temple and His work of redemption are at the center and everything else is on the periphery. God governs the nations. Israel should not be discouraged. They should serve God with courage. God governs nations, and God also governs lives. So the Israelites are called to build. These Jews are called to take a risk, and God will be with them. God is going to govern their lives. They need to be confident because God, who governs nations and who governs the world, also governs people and the affairs of families and individual households. And that's what we see is happening in Haggai chapter 1. Um, God, uh, they, the, these people had seen God governing their lives when he brought them out of, uh, out of Babylon and out of the, the far country and brought them back. And uh, God had raised up Cyrus, and these people, had, it, they had gotten excited about it, their families, they'd talked about it, And they saw that God was working in their lives to bring them back. And they had volunteered. You know, these were some of the people who were really on fire for the Lord. And the people who really wanted to serve God. And they wanted to build the temple and seek God's favor for themselves and for all of God's people and for the whole world. And so they they volunteered to come down. They carried gifts. They carried all of those those sacred vessels that had been in the temple long ago, they carried them back and they carried gifts from God's people and even gifts from the foreigners that they lived with up in Babylon. They carried them back. And when they got down to Jerusalem, just to show you how God had been working in their lives, they took a big offering and some of the heads of family, we read about all this, all this background in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 2, it says that when they took their offering, when they got down there to Jerusalem, the, some of the heads of families, altogether they donated about 1,000 pounds of gold. So it's 60,000 of their uh, gold quarter-ounce quarter ounce gold coins. It comes to about 1,000 pounds. You know, if you put it in the trunk of your car, you, you probably do some damage. Um, and then the silver that they donated, 6,000 pounds, three tons of silver, more than three tons of silver they donated. So God had worked in their heart. God had worked in their lives. He had provided for them even during their exile, and they had been able to make these contributions. They had seen God governing their lives even during the exile, but they stopped seeing that God was governing. Now they were being too intimidated. They had been stopped in the building, and they had gotten used to being stopped. So they weren't starting again. 
And in the meanwhile, since they were stopped from building the temple, they had changed priorities. Their focus had shifted, and now they're building their own houses. And this is one of the things that God just needles them about in Haggai chapter 1. These people say, it's not time, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. But verse 4 says, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Oh, remember David when he was living in a house that he had built, a great palace of cedar, and, and then he came to the, to, the, to the seer, the man of God, and he said, how can I do this? How can I be living in a paneled house, in this house of cedar, this wonderful palace, when the tent, when the, the uh, ark of God is in a tent? But these people are busy focusing on how to build their houses. So each of you, and says in verse 9, runs to his own house, busy with his own house. So they stopped seeing God governing and they switched priorities. But um, now they're seeing God's governance again. And that's what they're called to see in verse 5. God tells them to consider your ways. Consider your ways. Think about how it's been going. Because the way it's been going is uh, that you plant much and you reap little. Um, so God is aware of what's happening. He knows how much they planted. And he knows how little they harvested. You planted much, verse 6, and you harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. Hey, God knows how it is when I try to satisfy myself and I'm never quite full. God is acquainted with my personal life. You drink, but never have enough. You put on clothes. You mean God even knows about that? And yet you're not warm. You earn wages. Wait, God's keeping track of my money? Only to put them in a purse that has holes in it. God is personally involved, secretly ordering the affairs of our lives. And the people want to have covenant blessings He says to them in verse 9, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. They want the covenant blessings. They've come back to Jerusalem. They're God's people. They're doing God's work. And so they're expecting great things. God to be with them. And it's frustrating. And nothing comes out quite right. They're expecting covenant blessings, but they're not fulfilling the terms of the covenant. They have good excuses, but God wants more than good excuses. What does the law say? How do you read it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Do this and you will live. Jesus said this was the summary of the whole law, the Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. To love the Lord your God, not just to make excuses. So they've been dragging their feet because they've been discouraged. Discouragement is a terrible enemy. And as we look around at our circumstances today, it's easy for the servants of God to be discouraged. 
we feel like we're not at the center of things. We feel like we're nowhere. And uh, it's like this story that Jesus told of a man who went on a journey and he entrusted his property to his servants. And so he gave ten, ten talents to ten of his servants. Each one he gave a talent, a big bag of gold. And they were, to t- they were to invest it and earn money until he came back. And that's what it's like. He's gone. And we're obligated to remember who he is and to keep at work and to keep reminding ourselves that he's coming back. To keep reminding ourselves of what a wonderful master he is and all that we owe him. And to stay busy at his work, even though he's not looking over our shoulder, even though he's not encouraging us, even though he's not there to correct or or guide us. He seems far away. Don't be discouraged. He will come back from his journey. Well, I think that God is being very gentle with his people. You know, the way that, that God dealt with his people who, uh, who had sinned in the other prophets, it's much rougher than this. And I think that really what God is doing is he's warning them of what will happen if they don't respond. And so I think what will happen next comes in verses 10 to, uh, 10 to 11. So... Um, You expected much, verse 9, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. And then verse 10, here's what's going to happen if they don't take heed. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. You know, when a drought strikes an agricultural people, they don't have to consider their ways in order to discern that something bad is going on. No, 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 no. It's very, very obvious. It's remembered for generations, the drought and the famine. And that's the threat that God is giving them, that, uh, that they, need to, they need to get busy. And so his command to them is there in verse 8. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. God governs nations. And so they should be encouraged. They should be in awe of this great God. And God governs lives. So they should be encouraged and comforted to know that God will be with them as they step out and start building the house again. And God governs hearts. That's what we see in verses 12 to 15. As the word comes to the people something happens which you almost never saw in the rest of the Old Testament. But now in these later times, after the exile, 
um, in, at, during the period of, re, of restoration, during the period of, of return to Jerusalem, we see God renewing their hearts and we see the people responding in a wonderful way. So let's just look at, at uh, verses 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. Literally, listened. Listened to the voice of the Lord. But of course, you know what it means is not just that they, they heard it and it went in one ear and out the other, but that they paid attention. That they gave heed to the voice of the Lord and to the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared God. So the message, the warning, the exhortation, it came to them and they gave heed. They paid attention. And then they feared. They were in awe and they recognized God for who he is. This, uh, this rarely happened in Israel. You know, the thing about Haggai is uh, he's one of the minor prophets. And the reason he's minor is because he wrote so little. But if you'll turn back to Isaiah, he says a lot of the same things. And he just uses so many more words and uh, colors it in for us. So Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1. I just want you to hear kind of the tone of how the prophets used to speak to the people and what it was like for them as they continued in their rebellious ways during the previous centuries. So Isaiah 1, page 675. So I just want to read. This is from the beginning of of the book. You just open up right at the beginning. And God starts right into it. Verse 4. Isaiah 1.4, Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There is no soundness Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. There's nowhere else to hit. We're going to just start over again from the top. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Do you get the picture that you didn't have to be real discerning? to see that something was wrong. But the people's hearts were so set on their idols and on their selfish ways. uh, That was the the way that it was in Israel for all those years. And that's why the Old Testament is so full of doom and gloom. Because the people's hearts were so hard. But God, who works and orders things secretly, the God who sovereignly guides all things works in people's hearts. When God comes to the boundaries and the borders of my heart, He doesn't stop being God, but He can still work in my heart. And that's what God does for the people in, in, uh, in Jerusalem at that time, he begins to work on their hearts. It's a fulfillment of God's great promise that he had given 
another of these uh, blessing and curse passages, I won't make you turn to Deuteronomy 30. I'll just read uh, briefly. So this great blessing and curse passage at the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses gives all of his, his sermons just before the people cross into the land, and he warns them, these, these are the curses that will come upon you if you disobey. But then he tells them, and if all these curses come upon you, yet I will remember you, and I will keep my covenant with you. And if you turn from your sinful ways, I will bring you back. And he promises to change their hearts. Israel will not always be so stubborn. God will do something new in their hearts. So Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God, and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more numerous more prosperous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. God changes hearts. And so that's what happens here. The people hear the word of God and they're encouraged. God applies their promise, his promises to their heart. And so in verse Uh, Haggai chapter 1, verse 13. Haggai gives a message to them, a special new message, a new revelation. Because they heard that and they obeyed. Verse 13, it's only four words. I am with you. God says, I am with you. God gives them the promise of his presence. And so the people's spirits are stirred up. Their spirits are stirred up by his word. God has sent his spirit on us. He has poured out his spirit in these last days. And he renews hearts by his Holy Spirit. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So how is it with you? Does God's word stir up your heart? Do you listen? When God speaks, does it penetrate? Does it reach you? Does the word of God move you? Do you pay attention and give heed and obey? Do you respond with fear and awe and recognition? Is your spirit stirred up? And are you encouraged by the promises? God will work these things in our hearts. Let's just keep trusting God to work in our hearts by his spirit. We have the spirit. So what we have in Haggai is only a small picture, a picture in stones and in flesh of the great spiritual redemption that God is pouring out upon the nations. Even up to this day, God is still at work. So the people, the Jews, 
in Jerusalem at that time, they listened to what Haggai said. If you want to find out what happened, you can read about it in the book of Ezra in chapters 5 and 6, but I'll tell you the, the, the Cliff's Notes version. They took a risk. They began to build. They had read the letter from the previous king who had said no building should take place, but they just kept building. And so the local officials, the, the provincial officials came, and they said, what are you doing? And they took down the names of the people who were building, and the people who were the Jews, they, they said, well, this is what we're doing. This is what King Cyrus had decreed we should do. And we're only doing it. We've been slow at it, but we're getting busy. But God governs nations. God is the Lord. And God had his eyes on having that temple rebuilt. It was God's will. And God's people need to keep their hearts set on him and not looking at circumstances. So when the letter finally came to King Darius, the new king, he replied and said, not only that they should continue building, but that their expenses should be met by those officials in the province. Praise the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your power, for your presence, and for the encouragement that you give to your people just to keep trusting in you and looking to you. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.